From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend. Coming up, Chuck Wendig is going to tell us about why he writes horror novels that still have a dash of hope. I think having a little bit of hope and a little bit of heart and a little bit of humor, which is all H words. But first, let's sit back and unwind from the week that was with two excellent humans. With us this week, we have Patrick Hines. He co-hosts the True Crime Obsessed podcast and is the author of the new book, Failure is Not Not an Option. Patrick, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yay. Also here is Kristen Meinzer. She co-hosts the Daily Fail podcast, which does comedic close readings of tabloids. And she also co-hosts How to Be Fine, which looks at the good and bad of the wellness industry. Kristen, hello. Greta, thanks so much for having me back on the show. I'm so excited to be here with you and Patrick. Yay. Okay. So today is Friday the 13th. Are you superstitious people? Like Whenever, like I forget about Friday the 13th and then it will be a random Friday the 13th and I'll get really excited. I'm like, is today the day I meet a werewolf? I, I'm always <laughs> on the lookout. I'm a Bigfoot person. I feel like werewolf is Bigfoot adjacent. Oh, yeah. I want to meet the whole clan. You know oh what I mean? Oh my gosh. Amazing. What do you think, Kristen? <laughs> I like to think of myself as a super logical person. I like to uh-huh. think I am not superstitious. Uh, I know a lot about the history of where superstitions come from. You know, for example, salt. When we spill some, we put it over our shoulder, you know, toss them over the shoulder because salt used to be very prized and expensive. But now mm. I can get like a whole container of Morton's for one dollar. So, right. you know, like who cares? But I do have a confession. Uh, how to be fine. Back when we used to be called by the book, we mm. lived by a self-help book that That's was right. about tarot cards. And mm. while we were living by the rules of that book, I was filled with dread every day because one thing we had to do each day was pick a tarot card of the day uh-huh. that would yep. somehow determine our uh, purpose for the day or our day's mood or whatnot. And every single day I came to dread the moment when I had to pick my card of the day. So apparently I am superstitious because I was wow. so scared of those cards. I was That's terrified so of them. funny. The cards are beautiful, Kristen. You just got to go with it. I don't know. The deck I had, everything looked like murder. <laughs> <laughs> I do not consider myself to be a superstitious person at all, but... Friday the 13th in March of 2020 was the first day we worked from home because COVID was like just starting. At least for me, it was, it happened to be a Friday the 13th. Can I just like, on a note of hope though, say that Mm. this episode right now is airing on Friday the 13th with all of us together. Isn't that a sign that this is actually a good day? Yes. So it's got to be a good day. Oh, Kristen, you are so sweet. I love it. You're just the best. It's the same idea of like gays burning in hell. I'm like, well, great. Like that's where the party is. Like why would you want to go anywhere else? Send me straight there. That's what my great grandma always said. I would never know anyone in heaven anyway. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So another story I want to talk to y'all about from this week is about Jens Hanning. He's a Danish artist. He was commissioned to make a piece of art for a museum in Alborg, and they paid him the kroner equivalent of about $70,000 and they commissioned him to make a piece for their exhibit that was all about labor and the piece he turned in ended up being a blank canvas and it was titled take the money and run which I think is <laughs> hilarious and amazing um, the museum took him to court and he ended up having to pay the money back which is such a huge bummer but I would love to talk to y'all about this story because I think it does introduce a lot of really interesting questions around capitalism and art and worth and Patrick do you think he should have had to pay that money back well but here's the thing one of the details of that story is that the the museum like the 
the piece was supposed to be currency, either like taped or in some way yes. like fa- like fastened to the canvas as the art. And so the the mm-hmm. museum gave him the money to do that with the understanding that he was going to give that money back at the at the when the when the exhibit was over because it was like part of the exhibit. He literally turned in a blank canvas with and kept the money, <laughs> called it take the money and run, and they exhibited the art piece as he as he exhibited it. So I'm sorry, I'm on this guy's side. I think him keeping the money was part of the art. Like, I love these art (laughs) stories because art is at once so incredible and so ridiculous that, like, Mm -hmm. if he pocketed the money that was supposed to be part of the exhibit and they they exhibit the thing anyway without the cash and he literally calls it, I stole your money, the money is his. (laughs) The money is his. I do think that the, like, bummer, small, small print of it is that, like, they did commission him to make specific pieces of art. Uh Uh-huh. Which he did not. Mm -hmm. But I love what you're saying. And I think he totally should have been able to keep it. Kristen, what do you think? Well, like you, I really admire his gumption and his sense of humor. Um, It really does raise questions. You know, his art raises questions about Mm -hmm. labor and what does it mean to actually be a laborer and who holds the power and, you know, what is elitism and so on. And I would argue in a way... It's not just the museum that is made up of a bunch of elitists. It's also him, the artist. Mm-hmm. And so dun, I dun, don't dun. I don't necessarily want to take a side because I'm like, you are a well-to-do artist who can do things like this and laugh right. it off if you want to. You know who can't yeah. do that? The other 99% of the world, like everybody mm. on this call right now, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. And, and also he did not fulfill that contract, as both of you have pointed right. out. He had a contract to do a certain thing. For example, if... If I am going to commission somebody to paint a portrait of my uh, beloved late dog and they come yep. back and just give me a, a blank canvas or a picture of a lizard and instead. they're like, fuck you, Kristen. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> like, if you don't like this lizard, then you hate animals. It's like, no, I commissioned you to do a portrait of my late dog. So come on. Give me yeah. what I paid but for. I don't know because they they displayed the piece and so like the museum yes, made money true. off of the art. But I like the idea that, and I'm just making this up, but that like the museum and the artists were in cahoots and it was like, we'll give you the cash and then you steal the cash and then we'll hang up the art and then we'll sue you. And the whole thing is a commentary on labor. I love that idea. Okay. I want to believe that's true. Please say that's true. Yes. And then, yeah. and then that means they would have succeeded in drawing even more attention to what this was supposed to be about in the first yeah. place. I mean, yeah. We're talking about it. You know, here we are. Yeah. Okay. So another story from the week that is doing a lot in the best possible way is about a lady who tried to bring giraffe poop back from her trip to Kenya. She declared it at customs at the airport in Minneapolis and they confiscated it. Apparently she wanted to make a necklace out of it, which is a thing that she had done with moose poop, which I am actually oddly familiar with because I grew up in Alaska. <laughs> but anyway, Hold on. did you have moose I, poop jewelry, Greta? You know, it's funny because I totally forgot about it until reading this story. I was in like a church youth group in junior high and we, there was like a nationals meetup in Seattle or St. Louis. I can't remember which one, but we actually spray painted like a thousand little moose poop pellets gold and gave them out to people. <gasps> wow. What? So we brought those on the plane. 
Wow. But wait, she was coming back from a foreign country. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's like a whole other level. Because like they were saying that like the, the moose poop could actually be carrying diseases. Like I'm, look, I'm your fun gay best friend. I want everyone. <laughs> I want poop everywhere all the time. But like I definitely do defer to the scientists on this. Like maybe let's, I'm glad she declared it. She didn't like, yeah. she could have probably gotten away with it if she hadn't. Right. She kept it on. But like. They're saying that, like, I don't know, let's, there's enough going on in the world that we don't need, like, we Ugh. don't need diseases that we don't already have. Yeah. The info, yeah. Like, I, I guess what I'm saying is I can't go back into lockdown. So please keep your poop in your country. <laughs> That's all. That's all. I feel the same way. I, I totally agree with you. I'm just like, this could be the next pandemic. Most pandemics come yeah. from poop directly yeah. or indirectly. It's always about the poop, right? So yes. it's like, Please don't bring your poop here. <laughs> Only because poop is filthy. Yeah. Other than that, I celebrate poop all yeah. day, every day. Yeah. I do think in defense of the poop, I mean, at least with my familiarity of moose poop, it's sort of like rabbit pellet poop where it's like uh-huh. very, you know, they're vegetarians. It's not, you know, it's not like nasty poop. But I, I think totally what we're hear you and I think losing right. in the story here is how awesome giraffes are. <laughs> Can we talk about how just like amazing giraffes are for <laughs> yes, a second? I think we should zoom out, Patrick. I think we Thank should. Thank you. So they give birth standing up. Those babies come flying out. They can basically walk from birth. Oh. Like I'm obsessed. They they're purple so tongues. Cool. Those necks, they're amazing. I know. They're what magnificent. Cool they, they really are. But one thing I just want to say, just to be kind of a negative Nancy here, poop, <laughs> poop art, not that sophisticated, not that good. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. It reminds yeah. me of, you know, I'm a senior in high school or a freshman in college trying to make provocative art. And it's mm. not provocative. It's just poop. You know? It's just poop. It's just yeah. poop. So, like, if you want to be provocative, just do better. Do yeah. better. Oh, my God. I love it. Okay. That's fair. Okay. So, lastly, the rubbery shoe company Crocs is making, like, a limited run of cowboy boots. And I don't even know what to say about this. It's so... <laughs> They have spurs. I guess I'll say that. They're $120. They have spurs. Um, Patrick, would you wear these? No, they're so ugly. They're and like terrible. I am I am hashtag gay with no taste. I barely know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but like I looked at the picture of them and they were so ugly. I also, and I mean no offense to anybody, but like I don't understand the croc. I don't understand mm-hmm. the crocs. Mm-hmm. I don't they're mm-hmm. shoes with like rubber shoes with holes in them and people love I just really don't smear giraffe poop on my feet any day. I can't do the Crocs. <laughs> it's funny because I'm not into the Crocs either, but Birkenstock makes a very, I mean, it's the same like kind of rubbery waterproof texture in their sandals. And I do own like seven of those. <laughs> so like I can't, you yes. know, I'm not above it. Let's just be clear yeah. about that. Yeah. Kristen, would you ever wear something like this? Well, I have to confess something and I don't say this out loud very often. Are you it's a just Crocs between, guy? Well, I for several years wore those croc canvas slip-ons they looked kind of like vans but they had the footbed of crocs oh and i kid you not they were some of the most comfortable shoes i I owned and i owned them for years my husband met me and i was wearing them and he still married me okay so that's beautiful so so they weren't that hideous apparently he still liked me um but i i and and i'll say this i i think that the new cowboy boot crocs as ridiculous as they are are kind of fun. I, oh. I I think they're kind of like wearing cartoons on your feet. And um, <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with me. I look at these cowboy boots and I'm like, I think I would wear them. I think I'd do it. Oh my gosh. Well, Kristen, Patrick, thank you both so much for coming on. This was very, very fun. 
Thanks for having me. Oh, this was such a blast. Thanks, everybody. Right after the break, we are going to hear from Chuck Wendig about his very seasonal and extremely creepy new novel. Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. Our next guest is Chuck Wendig. He is the author of a number of books, including Wanderers and The Book of Accidents. And his latest horror novel, Black River Orchard, is extremely timely. He took inspiration from an apple stand at his local farmer's market. They had all of these apple varieties that I had never heard of, and I was fairly certain that it was a prank. Like uh, Lord Lamborn, it sounds like a vampire, right? Like Ashmead's Colonel. Um, Ace of Spitzenberg, um, Winter Banana. So he obviously took them home and he tasted every one of them. Already at that moment, I was way too interested um, in, in what, like, how does this happen? How does this happen that I've never had this? No one's had this. This feels like a made up thing. This fascination led him to write this new book. It's about a farmer and his daughter struggling to keep their Pennsylvania apple farm alive. Dan, the father, manages to come up with the most delicious apple in the world. At first glance, it seems like eating it might actually make you the best possible version of yourself. But as it turns out, the dark red apples carry a dark history and some downright disturbing side effects. My friend Anna Bauman, who produces Nerdette, is a huge fan of Chuck and his work. So she was super excited to sit down with him and talk all about this spooky new book. Okay, so apples are ripe for myth-making. No uh-huh. pun intended. I'm sorry for doing that. But they are, you know, because there's the Garden of Eden, there's Johnny Appleseed, uh, the saying is American is apple pie. So why apples? Well, first of all, like you said, it, I mean, it is, uh, quote unquote, ripe for all of this stuff. I mean, the Garden of Eden, yeah, but also Eris, the you know, myth of Eris, the apple of discord, um, causing mm-hmm. a great deal of uh, chaos in, in, in Olympus. Um, but also just, I really like apples. They really are <laughs> um, a fantastically fascinating fruit in um, the fact that there are, what, seven, 8,000 different varieties of apple, and we only generally ex- are exposed to maybe 20 of them maximum right. at, at our grocery store. It's my turn for the puns that kind of planted seeds oh, uh, and, and, you know, had uh, grow, uh, grew some strange fruit, so to speak. One aspect of this book that I really loved was um, the setting. It's set in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and that's a really mm-hmm. core part of the book. Um, and I actually grew up going to sleepaway camp. It was a Quaker camp in Bucks County. Well, um, what camp? Do you mind if I ask? Camp Onus. Camp Onus. I did Camp Onus. You went to Camp Onus? <laughs> yeah. Our school. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. I could totally imagine vividly your descriptions of the place and um, like put myself there like it's on the Delaware River. But I don't have to see that every day. And you do. Like, how does it feel to imagine these terrifying things happening in your home? (laughs) Uh, Really easy, because I grew up here. Sort of like, I think when you grow up in a place like it, you, 
you know, you both love it, but also recognize all of its sort of downsides. And at a certain point during growing up, you inevitably hate wherever you live or are from. Like, oh, I hate this place. I'm getting out of here. Right. And uh, I think, you know, that uh, just having that sort of baggage around an area. And plus, also, I know all the the creepy folklore and horror stories, uh, in some cases real, but generally mythical and imagined um, around this area. So it's actually pretty mm-hmm. easy for me. And it's it's got that old... There's a lot of old history here, so there's layers of just weird stuff that's been going on over over two, three hundred years. So I, I I had no problem imagining the the terror. You know, another aspect of this book that I really enjoyed was the main character, Kala, who's a teen. You know, she's a teenager dealing with teenage things, and it's a lot about her complex relationship with her dad, and that was true for Wanderers also. Um, And I really liked how you evoked the like, ugh, dad part of being a teenage (laughs) girl. But you also treated them with like tenderness and showed that there's her strength. And I wonder how what you do to inhabit that voice and also be respectful of it. In part, just because, you know, I I was a teenager and I'm currently Mm -hmm. raising a a preteen. So I'm starting to kind of I'm getting it. Like I start to Got see it. it, see it coming. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then in terms of being sort of respectful to them, I think it is the, the question almost answers itself. Like I am trying to be respectful of the characters. I'm not trying to be sympathetic in the sense that like, Oh, I feel bad for them, but I'm trying to be empathetic and like, cause everybody comes from somewhere and none of this stuff is whatever behaviors you have good and bad. And in the middle, I mean, they're, it's born out of something not, again, not to get punny, but there's, there's roots to that. Um, mm-hmm. And so everybody's a hot mess. <laughs> I think when you sort of accept that everybody's a hot mess, um, you, you you understand it a little more. And when you embrace yourself as a little bit of a hot mess and be like, we're all weird works in progress uh, in a variety of ways. And so treating characters like that, I think, tends to allow you to find their weaknesses and strengths and um, see how they play off each other. I appreciate that. Like, especially because so Kala wants to be an influencer is one of her dreams. Yeah. And that could so easily be made fun of. And there's like a little bit of that from the people in her life. But it's also you show like she actually has reasons for it of and it gets to like why she wants to be recognized by the people in her life, too. Yeah. And sometimes that's all it is, is just asking, like, well, why is this? Not just like it it is that way. Ha ha. Or yay. It's like there's like, why is this? What is the origins of that? What are the, again, roots of it? What? So I think trying to figure that out is always a, a, both a fun exercise and is the thing that lends them that level of complexity that hopefully allows us to understand them better and uh, feel like you're a part of the journey as opposed to just sort of like watching a, a symbol uh, inside of a story do something or be something. So I actually first read Wanderers um, because a number of Nerdette listeners said it was the longest book they had ever read. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> Yeah. And this one, this one is also long. It's over 600 pages. So yeah. what is it about long books for you? Uh, you know, first of all, like, I don't really, I don't try to write long books. It was um, <laughs> like Wanderers. I was, uh, you know, when I was writing that book, I was maybe a week away from deadline. And I was at about 180,000 words. And uh, which is the longest thing I had ever written by like 60,000 words. And okay. I went to my editor and I was like, I am this far into the book and I, I don't see an ending. So that feels that feels bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she was like, well, just keep writing, like write the book that it needs to be. 
let it let it be the length that it's going to be. And at first I was like, well, that's clearly a sign she's been taken hostage because no editor is <laughs> going to be like, don't worry about that deadline. Just make a huge book. We'll just publish the huge book. And uh, but that's really what she meant. She she was not um, in peril, as it turns out. And I took her uh, advice and I added another hundred thousand words to the book. Ugh. And uh, that just kind of was what it was. And I it, that's the story took that shape. Um, but the other thing is like I as a kid really liked long books sometimes like not always sometimes you like that short like even now like sometimes you can hand me a really sharp novella it's like an amuse-bouche of story it's great uh but sometimes you want that seven course epic thing Mm -hmm. how often do you think you think about the apocalypse and why (laughs) oh Oh, so we're, that's, that's the kind of interview it's going to be. Um, yeah, uh, more often now than I'd like, but I, I mean, I remember thinking about it a lot, even as a kid, because, you know, mm. like Gen X, it was like, Hey, you know, have a good day, everybody. Don't forget, like Russia might send nuclear weapons your way totally. uh, overnight. So, uh, good night, sleep well. And you're like, what? Oh my, that sounds horrible. <laughs> Listen, I'm sure every generation has some measure of like, hey, the world is kind of in some ways precariously on, uh, on uh, you know, on an edge. Uh, and we're, we're dealing with a number of those edges, I think, currently. So right. uh, I like to think it's as, it's normal, <laughs> like, probably more often than I should. But at the same time, I'm like, how are you not thinking about the apocalypse at least a little bit every day? I'm like, oh, that's, <laughs> huh, the apocalypse, right? Okay, so then how do you balance out that dire realism with you know, hope for future generations, especially as a parent. It's this is literally why I wrote the book of accidents, my book that came up prior to this, because it's, that's very much a book about sort of generational trauma and what we pass down to our children and how we try to like, some characters in the book are like building what they consider like an emotional seawall. Like, how do I stop all of this stuff that's inside me from crashing down on my kids? Um, and of course, doing that doesn't really work either. Like that's not a necessarily a healthy way. Um, but sort of one of the conclusions that one of the characters comes into in the book is is one that is mine. It's not really fair because it's something that came from me, which is, you know, for as much as I, I, I feel dire about the world around us, at the same time, like it, it sounds really cliche to say, but it, it's going to be the children who will save us and not in a superhero way, in a nuanced, uncomfortable messy way but that's they're the ones who are the hope i mean i think even though this book was like had some really dark scary it it was very dark and scary in a lot of ways but (laughs) there was there was also a lot of hope in it and in hope in like banding together in a group and i felt the same way with wanderers thank you yeah that's the goal like i there's nothing wrong with um the kind of horror that goes to some really nihilistic places uh, and I read that horror um, happily. But uh, from a writer's perspective, like I always, sometimes it's like the death and nihilism and the un, the completely unhappy ending, like the nothing good comes out of this ending. Um, I don't always find that I can find a point in me writing that. If only because the light and the darkness is what makes you mm-hmm. see the darkness. If it's just all dark, it kind of, I mean, it's like a taste that, numbs out like i think having a little bit of hope and a little bit of heart and a little bit of uh, humor which is all h words and i don't intentionally uh, mean that but uh, against the other h word horror i think there are important uh counterbalances to all of that that's very quaker of you thank you (laughs) yeah thanks thank you (laughs) chuck thank you so much this was such a pleasure to talk to you yeah thank you thanks for having me 
right. That's it for this week. Thank you as always for listening. A quick little book club update as we are pretty much at the midway point of this month. We would love to know what you think of Lauren Groff's book, The Vaster Wilds. We've already gotten a couple of voicemails, which is very exciting. You can send yours in by recording yourself on your phone and then emailing the file to nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. It is also never too soon to start the November book club selection. It is Land of Milk and Honey by C. Pam Song. So get onto that one as well. Nerdette is produced by me and Anna Bauman at WBEZ in Chicago and is part of the NPR network. And Brendan Banizak is our executive producer. We will see you next week. Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so, no one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that and it's Chicago based. So you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown.